Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Just three points now separate Pekka Banyaya and Jorge Martin in the 2023 MotoGP World Championship fight after a very wet, in the end, Japanese Grand Prix weekend at Motegi, which closed this title battle up even more than we've seen so far this year. And it didn't require a calamity for Banyaya or any strange events. This was a straight fight and Martin was just faster when it counted, which sets up a really enthralling title fight for the remainder of this uh, long, but actually pretty entertaining in the end season. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. I'm Matt Beer. Joining me are Val Harunchi and Simon Patterson, who is recording this one from a Japanese airport on his way out of the country after the event, looking relatively awake for a man who sat at an airport at 11pm local time after a fraught MotoGP weekend. So I must admit, We've been hyping. We've been hyping the title fight, and rightly so, because it's been getting better and better. And the, with the way the last month's gone, it was getting genuinely tense. But there was always that feeling of Martin still on a satellite bike. Banyaya has still had this bit of pace in hand whenever things have gone smoothly this season. It's good to get the storyline going for our, our listeners and readers, but probably maybe we are just overselling this a little bit after this motegi weekend. I'm absolutely adamant we are not overselling this. This is a real title fight, and it's going to be superb. But did you two see this coming at all going into this weekend? Were you expecting Martin to close it up more or was this where you thought Peko might just get back to business as usual? Go for it, Simon. Um, I think leaving India, it was kind of aware that, that not everything was fixed with Bagnaya. I mean, the crash out of the, you know, out of the podium fight was fairly evident that things weren't fixed. And we knew that he was going to need a little bit more time to, you know, to properly get back to where he was and, um, you know, sort of Austria time whenever he was completely and utterly dominating. So I didn't expect this weekend to be the weekend where it all turned around. Um, I think what we saw in the end was that it, it was definitely the weekend where things started looking a whole lot better for him again. And, you know, it, it hasn't been a weekend that has changed my opinion that uh, that he's still the guy to beat, that he's still the, you know, the leader of this championship race. Um, I think he's had a little bit of leeway that he's been able to give Martin, but I think it has to stop here now. This has to be, you know, as much uh, as much rope as he can give Martin before he starts pulling him back in again, which, you know, 
it's hard to tell. Will we see it in Indonesia? It, it, I'm not going to sit and predict what's going to happen. But um, for me, he's he's still the guy that has got it all together. Um, he was like ice cold this weekend. Um, all of the difficult bits of the weekend, nothing really fazed him. He was just, just chill about everything, the same as he was in India whenever things were going really badly wrong. And I think that's that's not the Pekka we know in the past. That's a, a very different character from the guy that whose you know, head used to fall off a little bit in some circumstances. Um, I still think that Martin's a bit of an untested quantity when it comes to that. Um, there's still six races, there's still a lot of, there's 12 races, there's six rounds, there's a lot of opportunity for things to not be perfect for Jorge Martin. And I'm really curious to see how he handles a not perfect weekend before we make any sort of, you know, assessment on where the championship's going. But but because we don't know that right now, for me, it's still in Bagnaya's hands. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd concur. I'd say it's, you know, I still see Bagnaya as the, title favorite even on evidence of, of Mategi and it's it's mostly because for me the one the blind spot that still remains unexplored that we still you know haven't seen at the angle that we're driving at is in their current shape how they will compare over just a normal full distance Sunday race which is when the big points are awarded am I actually completely confident for instance that if the Saturday sprint went the full distance that Martin would have seen off Banyaya not particularly, no. I, I I would not say so. Am I confident that Martin would have won on Sunday in a in a dry race? Again, I would I would say not particularly, although it did help that in both cases Banyaya botched the start relative to Martin and had to deal with unruly KTMs. Um I think that's maybe also part of where Banyaya's serenity comes from, is because the big points come on Sunday, and on Sunday is where he might expect to have something extra relative to Martin and how he manages races, how he plays them out. And the fact that like, in this recent stretch, there's just not been that direct comparison. And it's, you know, with, with Ener Bastianini, we got several of those last year when Bagnaia was fighting him. But, you know, the gap obviously wasn't this. The gap was 60, 70, whatever it was. So it wasn't even really a consideration. But here, I think... Were he suffer, it, it's clear to me why he's relatively serene, because were he suffer a normal defeat in just normal circumstances here on Sunday, I think that would be really concerning for his championship. But it was it was the kind of wet race where you're just you, you're like, there's no major point swing and that's that's good enough. This wasn't this wasn't the day to win it. Potentially this was the day to lose it. I think that's how maybe both of them will have viewed it, but certainly I think that's how Pekka Banya will have viewed it. Um that doesn't mean Martin can't win this year's title. He absolutely, positively, very much can. But I'm also, I think, on still on the Banyaya side of the equation. I'm really starting to doubt it. And there's two, two reasons for that. One is there's just no margin anymore at, at all. Peko can be as, as serene as he wants, but this is a series in which a lot of strange and unexpected things happen. And there's a, you know, 12 race starts to go. There's like we've we'll, we've touched on already, and we'll talk about later in the episode. There's KTM's coming up pretty strong now as well. There's an awful lot that can go awry in a MotoGP weekend. Three points is nothing, you know. That that graphic that Dorna has on the screen showing who the championship leader is, what the championship gap is, that was all over the place during the Sunday race at Motegi because yeah. it's now this close that every every move, every little good or bad qualifying lap actually really matters at this point and. Yeah, you're right that 
he Banyai was serene through a lot of challenging circumstances through the weekend, and it was an unusual one. But Martin has not been in this position before. Okay, he's not got the pressure or expectation, but this was a weekend when he had to really prove that he could take the fight to Banyai properly in a straight fight, normal-ish circumstances. And there were lots of occasions where he could have tripped up and made a mess of it, whether it was Brad Binder coming after him in the sprint, whether it was getting the qualifying laps right in Q3, and particularly in the Sunday race, he'd made a mistake, had gone down the field, the conditions were really up and down. If this was the Jorge Martin of late last season who was losing his head mid-race and throwing it down the road at any half opportunity to, to crash out of a race lead, I, yeah, I'd, I'd feel very differently. But Every challenge that Motegi threw at Martin this weekend, he absolutely mastered and nailed and came out with it out of it with a maximum score and having completely obliterated what was left of Banyai's lead. I just find that I find that so impressive. And I think being being too serene is almost complacent for Banyai now, because there's this is a straight fight. They're virtually equal. No, I agree. It's a it's a what is it, a sixth round championship now. Those three points. But yeah. I am I am fairly confident that the championship is going to be decided by more than three points. Because that's that's just how it normally usually is, and it could very well be decided in Jorge Martin's favor by by more than three points. I'm I, I'm not sure I like massively buy into like the personal growth angle of it because I I never do. For me, there's always just this. For me, there's always like a slightly simpler Occam's razor explanation of Jorge Martin hated last year's Ducati engine that he was saddled with, couldn't make it work, couldn't be consistent with it. This year's engine is fine, and it's the same engine that, that Pekka Bagnaia has. And Jorge Martin is, of course, plenty good enough and talented enough to, to fight for a, for a MotoGP title. I don't think it was ever a particular calamity. I think his set of priorities maybe wasn't entirely right so far in, in the positions that he was fighting for th those years, not so much this year. But you will remember that coming into the season, I was probably the most bullish when it came to the prospect of Jorge Martin being Peko Banyaya's biggest thorn. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not trying to dampen it because I think it is very cool. It looks like a really genuinely very cool title fight. I think Jorge Martin did a weekend that is unimpeachable in everything he did because there was a variety of conditions. Yes, we, I didn't get the full Sunday dry race that I wanted to base something off of, but he, he smashed the lap record, done. He uh, won the sprint race pretty comfortably, done. And he was almost the quickest rider in the wet. I say almost because actually secretly, I think his teammate Johan Zarco was the quickest and should have won going by my research that I've just conducted for an hour or so, that might be completely wrong. I agree, wrong. for what it's yeah. worth, I agree. But again, you know, running, that's not something that necessarily I think I would have expected of Jorge Martin. Not that he's bad in the wet, but just because MotoGP has so many riders that step up their relative level of performance so much in the wet that it becomes much more of a crapshoot, if you will. Um, the fact that he was this convincing in this short wet race now he made a huge mistake at some point at turn three i think he ran to the long lap loop and he ended up i don't know like fifth or sixth provisionally or wherever he was running and yeah. it took like a two or three laps to get back to the lead so clearly he had a lot of pace in his pocket in those conditions and a lot of confidence to to put that pace onto the track and not worry about the the championship ramifications and that, you know, that is an important weapon to have. And if this is how they compare in the wet, if Martin has something extra, that might very well prove decisive at some point. But yeah, all that said, I'm still probably in, in Banyaya's corner. There's one thing I'm pretty sure of, uh, just to pick up on something you said, Val, but there's not being a championship that's going to be decided by three points. 
Um, I don't think this is a championship that's going to be decided by these two guys finishing first and second every weekend for the next 12 races. There's a catastrophe coming here. There's something is going to happen because with the tension of everything we've already got in MotoGP at the minute, with the sprint races, with the crazy first corners, this is just going to ramp up and ramp up. Um, if these two guys go 12 races without a mistake, without either of them putting a foot wrong, I will be shocked. I mean, I, I can't, honestly, I can't imagine a Ayogura Augusto Fernandez Moto 2 finish from last year where they were just taking turns giving each other the championship lead. It's entirely possible. <laughs> that wouldn't yeah. surprise me. That wouldn't surprise me. No. Well, this is where actually I quite like the length of the calendar for the first time because now we're in this situation. We've got enough time for things to play out a bit. And actually, if if one of them has a disaster next time, there's still enough rounds for the other one to have disaster or to actually bring those points back a bit naturally. So, okay, it's been brutal in lots of ways having a season this long for everyone involved in MotoGP, but now we've got this this six-round mini-championship. Actually, I'm, I'm really glad there's still six rounds left and there's not, like, two left. I was about to say, Matt, that that is very much said like someone that's sitting at home and not in an airport lounge in Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. I, for what it's worth, I'm sitting at home and I'm, I'm cosmically tired. But uh, <laughs> for me, it's also, you know, it, it almost feels like I feel really bad in advance for whoever's going to lose because this is a 40 race season and it honestly it does feel like a 40 race season should maybe award more than one championship but that's not how a calendar year works but it, it really does feel like this is like a proper proper marathon isn't it and whoever wins this title i don't want to say we'll have won like the hardest MotoGP title ever or whatever but certainly it it will be a different kind of accomplishment to some of the other championships in the past just because of the brutal length of the calendar that will of course get even even longer next year no it won't kazakhstan's not gonna happen um but well, it's, it's still gonna be longer just, 21 isn't it yeah even if, even yeah, if kazakhstan doesn't yeah. happen yeah yeah thanks val thanks um <laughs> we, we are gonna have to at some point have a look sit down and have a look at the stats once all this is over and figure out um who would have been the champion without the sprint races and who is the sprint race champion yeah, because you know, that's a completely new metric for this year and I, I know it doesn't count you know, at the end of the day a point's a point when it comes to the final table but it is something we're going to have to sit down and, and consider at some point over winter I think it's probably going to be Martin that like utterly dominates the, uh, the sprint race one but I did see someone had worked it out earlier in the year um, you know, just the just the Sunday races, and it was Bizecki that was still mm. like, yeah. pretty comfortably that ahead. So that, that that's going to be good. that's going to be curious to see. It's interesting, Val. You kind of hinted this this will be a particularly hard one championship, but we wouldn't want to say it's like the hardest ever, apart from the calendar length. But it, there's a different character to this fight that I just don't feel like we've seen in MotoGP for a while. And what I mean by that is we've had title fights. And I'm thinking of some of the Andrea De Vizioso versus Mark Marquez ones where it was interesting and close, but ultimately Ducati wasn't ready for a title fight really yet. De Vizioso wasn't in Marquez's class. It wasn't really a straight fight. It was it was great, but it wasn't wasn't yeah. wasn't really properly full on. We've had the Fabio Cortoraro uh, versus Pekka Bagnaia title fights, which were there weren't many times relatively in that where Ducati and Yamaha were peaking at the same time. You know, you'd have someone taking 25 points out of the other one in the weekend with the other one yeah. lying on the bum in the middle of the gravel trap or something. It wasn't wasn't like this. And then there's 2020, which was absolutely all over the place. And there was never really a kind of who you didn't really know who the title rivals were to like three quarters of the way through the season. We knew it when the title was 
over. Over. That's when yeah, we knew basically. it genuinely. I can't. It's been ages since we've had one like this in MotoGP where you have got the chance of these guys finishing top three most weekends, disasters permitting, because they're both on really competitive bikes. They're both at the top of their game and they're just nip, nibbling now little points off each other like they were this weekend. This is Valentino Rossi versus Jorge Lorenzo with Brad Binder playing the yeah. role of, of Casey Stoner. Yes. Yeah. Th- that's that's the, the, the best comparison I can make here, you know? The the guy that's on the bike that's not quite good enough that's there occasionally, and then the two, I know they're not teammates, but the you know the two factory compatriots just going head-to-head and, and sort of slogging it out at the front. Um, and the fact that, that both of them are doing it Lorenzo-style with, like, metronome precision whenever they do get to the front kind of just adds to that theory for me. Simon Simon's erased Marco Bezzecchi from existence briefly there, I think, by accident. He's Danny Pedrosa. He's Danny Pedrosa okay, here. Yes, no, well done. Well played. Uh, 10 out of 10. Respect. Uh, but to me, actually, I do think that this is probably the weekend that calls the end for Marco Bezzecchi's title aspirations, really, because... I do you feel really. Like we've said that quite often. That's my only caveat to that. No, but it, yeah, I see what you mean. But it's, it's borderline... Like, it's 1.5 race weekends now against both riders yeah. with six race weekends to go. I mean, okay, yeah, Kimi Raikkonen in Formula 1, 2007, whatever. Um, it's This is the kind of weekend where really he also had to press more of his advantage, especially with the wet race, and didn't it didn't quite come together. And also he did a, a, a really quite blatant big mistake at turn one that he got away with that sent Maverick Vinales crashing and sent Johan Zarco to... To the gravel trap, effectively, I think, I'm going to mention this again, potentially denying him a first career race win that was ignored by the stewards for reasons I I don't understand and don't, I don't think I'm ever going to understand because I, this is going to be, I'm going to take the steward bashing role this time. I don't, I don't get it. I've seen that replay many, many times. And it's, if, if we penalize Alex Marquez for what he did at Le Mans, this, we penalize this because it was Turn one, getting it overcooked. The only reason there wasn't a collision with Maverick Vinales is because Maverick Vinales went, oh crap, picked up the bike, went into Zarco. They both went, they both, you know, basically their races were effectively ruined there. Um, Anyway, yeah, Marco Bezzecchi has had a lot of turn one issues caused by other riders this season. So maybe this was a get out of jail free card, mulligan, forgive us for everything uh, type of thing. But I think he just he didn't score enough this weekend for for the chances to really still be there. And I, I think now it is properly a, t- a two-rider fight. That's my suspicion. It's going to be great when we reconvene next weekend and somehow they've all not scored and did the, <laughs> the full 37. Well, it is Mandalika coming up, which is a bit of a, bit uh, of a weird one, isn't yeah. it? So who knows? It is a, it is a weird one. And Miteki could absolutely probably do that at Mandalika, yeah. This is weird. This is this is not something I do very often, but I'm going to start by briefly praising the stewards. Well, um, and say I know, right? Take a photo, and yeah. and say that one of the things that they have done this year is they've updated the system that they use to notify us of of all the things that they do during the day, and that includes whenever they investigate something that that, that goes no further. You know, whenever there's no further action. Um, So just to really hammer home how stupid it was, and get back to form, obviously, how stupid it was that Bezeki got away with what he did. They didn't even investigate it. It didn't even go in the sheet as an incident under investigation. They just looked at it and went, yeah, fine, nothing to see there. Let's move on with the rest of the race, which I I really don't understand either. But, yeah. 
Um, on the Bezeki title front, this so I, I don't think this is something that has happened like on purpose in the paddock. I think it's a bit of a subconscious thing or subliminal thing. But this is the weekend where people stop talking about Marco Bezeki title challenger. You know, in India, it was still something that was sort of mentioned or that was there. But you know, he he was sort of carried in the same in the, the same sort of high air as the other two. And this weekend, he wasn't. That's gone now. Um, he, he's definitely he's he's kind of lost the charm of of being you know one of the chosen three, um, which, which is you know fairly indicative of where he is in the championship and and you know where his points are. Yeah, I I. I don't want to write Bezeki off yet because it feels like it is literally a week ago at the Indian Grand Prix where his form was so incredible that it, it felt obvious that, okay, the points weren't great for him, but you could see him being a factor at the front in every single race the rest of the season. There. But a slightly odder weekend for him. And like you say, he, he has two riders to catch now. I should back, I, I'm going to backtrack to my earlier uh, declaration of how amazing Martin was this weekend by the way just to add that actually Banyaya has had enough times in his career where you'd expected him to lose his head in a wet race an unusual circumstance because he'd lost places off the line and actually it was very impressive how he kept his head and did everything with that precision that you two have both talked about it actually both him and Martin are delivering at a very high level when they're when they have a smooth weekend Martin's mostly had smooth weekends recently Banyai has had some strange ones the Catalonia crash the uh, the era in India but at their best they are really really on incredible form at the moment when when they're in the right zone which Martin is hitting time and time again so it does feel like a really equal two horse race now between them and I don't I haven't I don't feel like I've seen that level of absolute strength from Bezeki as consistently which you probably wouldn't expect as well given where he is in his career the team he's with and, and the bikes Becky has I, I mean you remember what both Bagnaya and Martin were doing at Pramac at this stage of their career and there was a lot more crashes and uh, a lot more DNFs yeah. than, than Bezeki is delivering right now you know that the reality is he has all the time in the world here he has all the time in the world to develop into this. Um, just on the Martin front, um, really quickly, this this weekend was the best I've ever seen from Jorge Martin. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. that would, this was his single best weekend of performance because he dominated in the wet and in the dry. To do that with a championship on the line is, is something really special. Um, you know, that should be acknowledged. He really, he was something else this weekend. Uh, fair play to him. If he wins the title, this will be a weekend he looks back on as one of the, the key weekends that the sort of tipped it in his balance in his favour. Oh, I just feel like this weekend was a weekend neither of them could afford to get wrong. Benyai could not afford another mistake. Martin could not afford to lose the momentum that he'd just gained over the last few last few races, and they both absolutely delivered on that. Val said it at the very start This today was a day to lose a championship not to win one yeah that's exactly what it was for both of them now we mentioned Pramac a second ago which is which is something we don't actually flag up that much with the form Martin's been on lately he is still riding for a satellite team now okay he's got equal bike spec with uh, with the factory but si Simon many many times you said satellite riders cannot win championships and your evidence for this has tended to be that we get to this point in the season and just the sheer smaller size and resources of those satellite teams kicks in. Everyone's more exhausted because there's fewer of them doing the work because they're not able to, you know, they can't afford the same level of comfy flight, comfy hotel when we're on a, a bazillion flyaways within eight weeks. Now, we're quite early in this non-European swing, so it's logical that wouldn't quite have kicked in yet. But right now, Pramac is not tailing off in the slightest. No, they're not. But 
this is this is the first time this season where that factory influence has really shone out to me. Um, so in Thursday's press conference, uh, one of the things I asked Bagnaya was whether, you know, they, they believed that they'd fixed the problems uh, that they had, you know, been able to stop the bike, the issue that he's had repeatedly for the last two or three races. Um, and, you know, whether having a bit of time with his crew because they've all been traveling together from India was the time that he needed to, you know, to understand things, fix it. And he he kind of said yes and no, because the people that he had the most praise for was the team of Ducati engineers back in Bologna who are doing all the data analysis and everything they've seen from the last few races. And, and that is a factory resource. That That is one of the things that makes being a factory rider so much better than being a satellite rider. Um, you know, there's a room somewhere in Bologna full of uh, high-powered computers and, and, and even more high-powered engineering brains that were able to spend two or three days crunching all of the data gathered from the last, you know, like probably three or four hundred laps that Bagnaya has completed, and they found a solution for it. And right now that's not a factor because Martin doesn't need it. But if we get to a point where he does need it, then that's going to be the sort of thing that... that you know, I still think tips a factory bike, a factory rider, a factory team into being just better in a title fight, especially one where, you know, some of that team in Europe would undoubtedly be in a truck at the paddock, uh, but they're not now. They're, they're on the other end of an internet, high-speed internet connection, and they're still doing their job. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's a real strength. And then bearing that in mind then, and I'm jumping ahead a few months now, Let's say Martin defeats Banyai to become world champion this year. Can Ducati afford to have their latest world champion still on a satellite bike next season? And I mean that in two ways. In terms of reputationally, is it just a bad look for the factory to have the guys just won the title for you on a satellite bike still? And also in terms of just Ducati's general strength against hopefully stronger non-Ducati opposition next year, if a guy's just pulled that off at Pramac, surely you want him in your in your flagship team i'm really glad i'm not T- Gigi delinia <laughs> and I'm, I'm pretty glad i'm not an air bastinini as well because there's going to be serious conversations there's going to have to be a serious conversation had about what happens here um if Gigi is the the sort of the mastermind that i think he is then there's probably a clause in uh Bastinini's contract that says if someone else wins the title then he loses their you know his seat to them even though they've already announced him as a factory rider again next year uh because I think Ducati have to have the world champion on a factory bike and it's not because it looks bad for them if anything it looks really good that one of even one of their satellite bikes can win a title but if they win a title next year they're going to do what every manufacturer does when they win a title and they're going to try and milk it for everything it's worth and I think to properly milk that they're going to have to have Martin within the factory like like fully within the factory so that he can go to the Shell Lubricants events and you know go ride the Italian high speed train that give them X amount of hundreds of thousands of euros all of that stuff is going to have to you know have him in factory colours Daniel I, I, I can't really argue against that but I, w- I do suspect that Jorge Martin would be more bothered about going to the factory seat if he loses the championship than if he wins it. If he wins it with his current crew, then whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Primark color is good enough. And then then I hit the market in 2025 and I make absurd amounts of money with whoever it is who offers me whatever they offer me. I think I think you can probably 
all of this you can work yourself out of with some off-season maneuvering for 2025. That's that's that would be my suspicion. But then obviously other players also enter into the picture and it, it gets it gets fun. It's also worth remembering that we know that Ducati have already offered the second factory seat for 2025 to someone else. Because Mark Marquez was offered it. <laughs> the, the initial deal that they offered him for Pramac was a two-year factory deal that was one year at Pramac and one year at Factory Colors alongside Bagnaya, according to the Italian press. So they've already, you know, traded that off to someone else. Like That's got to make Martin think about his future as well and think about whether or not he should go there. Um, at the end of the day, if they want him in Factory Colors, they will drag him kicking and screaming. But you know, it's what you look, what you see beyond then that um, is the really interesting thing. I think where he ends up in the future. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, this seems as good a time as any to bring in Mark Marquez. And traditionally on this podcast this year, we've ended up talking about Mark Marquez's future for 40 minutes and then mentioning the race. We flipped it this time. We've talked about the championship fight and the race for once. And we're starting about half an hour in with Marquez chat. Now, there was a strong hint that the Motegi weekend would not deliver a lot of obvious movement on the Mark Marquez potential Honda exit, potential Grassini Ducati move situation on the grounds that it'd be a little bit rude to play out too much um, social media mischief or even more so an announcement of a Honda exit on Honda's home ground, a race that was so important to it. Um, so Marquez was quite coy and not a playful sort of coy this weekend, but didn't stop quite a lot happening, both movements at Honda and then on Sunday in particular, uh, some very prominent Ducati people, Paco Bagnaia and Gigi Deligna, 
almost talking like it was a done deal. In fact, pretty much talking like it was a done deal, then backpedaling a little bit that Marquez would be on a Ducati next season. So uh, who wants to give a state of play as we leave Motegi on where this Marquez situation actually is and what might happen next? Go for it, Simon. So said at the start of the weekend, there was never going to be an announcement this weekend if he was leaving because that he wouldn't do it in, in Motegi. Um, he wouldn't do that to Honda, I'm pretty sure. Um, he, he's, you know, he's not, he's not that evil. Um, but the fact that there wasn't an announcement that he was staying in Mitegi is something that adds fuel to the fire, especially as we go to next round in Indonesia, where the majority of the Grassini Ducati sponsors come from. So it's, it's a second home round for Grassini. And then he made a comment in the press conference in response to a question from me that was immediately picked up by Peko Bagnaya for quite an amusing moment. Um, I asked him if the race had, you know, the, sort of a podium finish had changed his, his future, anything had changed his thinking. And he said, no, it, it wasn't about one race win. It was about bigger picture, which is absolutely fair. Uh, and then he added a line basically saying, but it was still very romantic to have a podium with Honda. At which point a fully mic'd up Peko Bagnaya and the other side of the podium press conference went, bye-bye Honda. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of forced a Marquez denial pretty swiftly. But he didn't say no. Um, he didn't say no. He said no, why? But yeah. like, no, this is not what I meant. Not necessarily no, I'm not leaving. But no, yeah, no, 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 exactly. Yeah, he could have no, 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 said no, a no. few more words at that point, couldn't he? But he didn't. Yeah, yeah. Although, to be fair, it, it also shows how much blood bond still remains that Paco then immediately followed up with a next you'll be kissing Valentino. Just just to really stir that pot from 2015, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, I think... I mean, I, every time we talk about this, I swing to the other side of the coin. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. Um, yeah, this is this is probably the closest I've come in a while to thinking that he is going to switch. Um, simply because of the timing. Because I expected that he'd get up in that press conference. And, and it's kind of the reason why I asked the question. I thought that he'd get up in the press conference and say, nah, I'm going to be a Honda rider next year. Because, you know, I love Honda and Honda love me. And he didn't say that. He had the opportunity to and he didn't. So it could be an f- interesting week next week. Um, if you want, whenever we're done on the podcast, I'll send you what time my flight to Indonesia is. Because obviously he's going to announce it when I'm in there. Like, that's how these <laughs> things always work. <laughs> I'm half expecting to, for an announcement to come in the editing process of this podcast. Not not just because that's how, but not just because that's how things normally work, yeah. but because it it I am really close now to believing it. Well, uh, let me rephrase that. I believe it. I I I think my my suspicion is he's out because he again, as Simon says, he did not announce that he's staying this weekend and he's being coy and he's. You know, a lot of the reporting seems very convinced that he's, you know, he's heading to Grishini. That Grishini seat still sits unfilled. Ducati's now talking a lot more openly about the prospect of having Marc Marquez on one of its bikes. Gigi Delinia today, and this is, you know, we're, we're going to mention the other thing that apparently is probably the bigger shoe to drop than Banyaya's light trolling in the press conference, is Gigi Delinia telling Sky Sports Italy that Mark wants to be on our bike before sort of backtracking it 
from well that's you know that's been his public statements which they haven't really mark hasn't really no i was gonna say he hasn't I, has he really i mean if i if i look around for it maybe i'll find something like he he does always he said more about ktm true <laughs> yeah. about the ktm pros he does he does always basically say that the Ducati is the best bike so that's you know that's your plausible deniability if you want it but i my suspicion is Gigi Delinia privately knows something about what Marquez's ideal plan is for 2024 and is corroborating the reporting that it's all about finding an amenable, financially reasonable way of splitting up with, with Honda, which if, if, if that's what is happening, then of course, no Mategi announcement makes perfect sense. But an announcement coming straight out of Mategi would also make perfect sense, especially off the back of a romantic podium and a third place finish. Uh I, but it's it's you know it's really easy to say oh it's definitely happening and then be made to look like a fool because it's just been you know Marquez has been messing with everybody this whole time and it's just or it's his still continued strategy to put more pressure on on Honda which this weekend I think came out I don't know if it happened this weekend but this weekend's uh, technical reshuffle for Honda has happened uh, I my problem is I'm going to mispronounce all the names involved so that's unfortunate. Uh, it was uh, so the the tech chief who it I think was brought back in as the main tech guy this this year or at least for the start of this year uh, Kukubu-san is being moved aside and from within promoted to as basically his replacement as far as it's, it's being reported is Shin Sato uh, f- again from within which. You might think that it's not quite what what Mark Marquez wants, or like, that he wants you know European recruitment. He wants recruitment for the likes of Ducati, Aprilia, like a big money move for, if not Gigi Delinia, then one of Gigi Delinia's disciples doing quite well at other manufacturers. But he, he did sound fairly. He, he didn't sound negative at all at all about that move. But he also specified. He made it very clear that this is not something that yields an immediate result. And for me, that's that's also a very important clue as to what he's thinking. Mark Marquez has been talking like a, a person who's very, very aware that he's hit the big 3-0. And I, I appreciate, I understand that because my big 3-0 is coming in a month. But <laughs> so I, I, I perfectly understand the, the thinking. Um, Mark Marquez knows that he just does not have that many more chances of fighting for a MotoGP world title. You know, time is undefeated. And maybe he's currently feels like he's, you know, he's been taking a lot of defeats not just to rivals but to time time sticking and i think his admission that the honda moves won't pay off overnight that it's in you know it's in a rebuild it'll need time i don't think he sees himself as the right rider for that state of the project and also i think that is also why he always says we're going to figure out the best solution for me and for the project for all of us that doesn't mean staying together. It doesn't necessarily mean staying together. In fact, for me, that means going their separate ways. For me, that's what I see as the best solution for everybody involved. There's one really interesting name that keeps coming up this weekend um, regarding who Honda want to sign or who they're, they're talking about signing. And it's not a European engineer, which is you know what Mark has wanted, but it is someone that um, knows how to get the most out of Japanese engineers with the European mindset and that is former Yamaha and Suzuki boss Davide Bravio if I, I, I honestly I, I can't think of a better signing for Honda to make 
if they were trying to convince Mark Marquez that they're serious about changing how the team works because of what Brivio did at Suzuki in particular. Um, you know, Yamaha have a reputation as being relatively European as things go in terms of, of how they run. You're certainly of the three Japanese manufacturers, they're the best um, at that. And Suzuki are probably the one with the worst reputation because they're small and it's hard to change, you know, to create big cultural shifts within a small team. But Brivio did it and took them to a title with uh, Mark Marquez's teammate, Juan Mir. And with the, 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 the project technical manager, Ken Koichi, who's now in the Honda box. So that, to me, that would be the signing. That, that is the headline name that they need to get to come in and, and prove to him that they're going to turn things around. There's no sign of it happening yet, and it is talk, but it's, you know, there's no smoke without fire. And part of me wonders if one of the factors that is seeing all this stretch out and stretch out and stretch out is that Mark Marquez's exit is not the primary negotiation going on at the minute within Honda. Maybe. Uh, uh, David Brivio would make a lot of sense to me, but I, I should say David Brivio almost makes more sense to me as a signing if Mark is leaving than if Mark is staying. Uh, just, you know, paint yourself the picture. Brivio, Kawauchi, and Joan Mir, who's starting to figure some things out on the Honda. He's had a generally a pretty decent weekend, I would say, this weekend. He has not looked as good as India, but he has not looked desperately off the pace as he had for like 10 weekends before India. He, he's looked better than his results. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. He's looked, he's looked absolutely fine. I think uh, unobjectionable. He had a visibility problem that robbed him of what I think would have been a fairly comfortable top 10, maybe a fair bit better. Um, I think if you're going to rebuild, David Abrevio, Ken Kawauchi, uh, Jean Mir, and Johan Zarco, it's good. It's, it's not Marc Marquez, but do you need Marc Marquez with the bike in its current state? I mean, maybe when he brings brings it onto the podium like he did this weekend, but I think at the price that you're paying, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm not convinced. So this this is why also if, if, if you go for David Abrevio, I think it's to just do a root and branch, start from scratch, find somebody great in Moto2 who David Abrevio really likes. Maybe try to poach Pedro Acosta, who's, you know, apparently <laughs> having some doubts over whether he's going to be allowed onto one of the KTM MotoGP bikes after all. Or find somebody else. There's, you know, there's five million great talents in Moto3 every year. David Abrevio will pick pick a good one, probably. Surely. So yeah, that's how that's how I would play it specifically if Mark is leaving, but also I guess if Mark is staying. So again, <laughs> no real insight from me. Apologies. Well, I think we can summarize that, and this thing I absolutely agree with as what Honda needs to do is be Suzuki with some more cash behind it. And there's the opportunity to recreate quite a few parts of that Suzuki package, but with a Honda and Repsol budget behind it if they do the right sort of shopping. And I, I agree with you, Val. They shouldn't be using any signing at the moment as a can we keep Marquez move because that's almost irrelevant in the long-term state of Honda. Honda's got a lot of problems to solve. Marquez is, would be sort of papering over the cracks if he stayed. I actually I don't think a big signing would convince Marquez at the moment. I, you know, a, a podium in the wet certainly has will have done nothing to convince Marquez either way. This is all about what you said about his own career position at this point and how long he wants to wait to be a front runner again. And he's got an option that can make him an instant front runner if he jumps ship to somewhere in the Ducati fold, or he's got the Honda situation which best case is a big signing and it's a big change straight away and at some point next season something might happen worst case 
two, three more seasons before they actually regain all the ground they need to with whatever changes they make. So I I think one of the things Delinia said in his uh, semi-explosive Sky interview that was perhaps the most true was the references to finding a way out of Honda that's kind of amenable to Honda and works within the contract. Just the the kind of small print and money and face-saving element. I really strongly feel that this, this is the only element that's left that's affecting the timing of, of this decision. I don't think there's any way to persuade Marquez that what he needs right now is to keep faith with Honda for longer. He's getting on a bit. He wants to win more races and more titles. He's got to get on the Ducati to do that quickly and then maybe a KTM afterwards. It's This is about how, how we do it tidily. I agree. But I, I am also terrified that he's just messing with all of us, which is exactly how <laughs> he likes it. That is exactly what he wanted to do, regardless of what the actual, <laughs> what the actual decision is. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So before it rained on Sunday, the... One of the most competitively interesting elements of the weekend was that KTM brought something very significant for its bike and KTM was a very strong threat to Martin in the sprint and it wasn't just Brad Binder being quick. Jack Miller went from being really, really poor for a few weekends to being right in the thick of things in the lead group. So, Simon, talk us through what's changed at KTM and the significance of it and it was it was kind of masked in the wet race on Sunday but certainly on Saturday and in practice as well it felt like this was KTM going, right, we are now right with you for the rest of the season, Ducati. So KTM, the manufacturer that came into MotoGP making a, a tubular steel frame and insisted that that was their heritage and they'd never do anything else, have made a frame out of something else and now have a carbon fibre frame that was first used in a race by Danny Pedrosa during his wildcard at Mizano massively successfully to the extent that they then immediately the, the factory riders were immediately like us we want that now make that happen right now um which to be fair to ktm they've done by bringing at least three of them that we can figure out this weekend um the, the, so it's, it's miller made a big step this weekend but miller can be Mr. Inconsistency. So it's it's hard to tell if all of that big step was because of the new frame or if some of it was just Jack being Jack. Uh, and Brad is never one to show you his cards unless he has to. Um, and, and he was kind of downplaying it as, oh yeah, it's a step in the direction that we want to take. It's not the be all and end all, blah, blah, blah. 
but but it made a big difference. Um, there is no doubting that it made them as competitive as they've been really at any point this season, apart from maybe back at at Hareth, um at the start of the year. Uh, we didn't get to see it on Sunday because um, team boss Francesco Guidotti was actually a bit peeved post race that they'd basically been thrown into a dry race that was actually a wet race with the flag to flag, you know, white flag coming out on the first lap because that meant that there was no wet practice and no wet setup time. So they, they kind of guessed at it. Um, he said that that sort of hindered them in a way, uh, showing what they, what they could because they had to go conservative and things like power maps. But yeah, it, it looks like the real deal. Um, I, I don't know if it's the final step that Binder needs to set, kind of finish this year strong enough to start next season as a genuine title contender but it's a big step forward and also you know really cool to see KTM doing something different with new materials and being able to do it really fast and really responsively that's a you know if you're a KTM writer not right now that is a bit of a delight to see happening thanks I think it's a big big deal for I know it's you know it's it's sort of overseen this huge improvement in, in Jack Miller's form and you can actually see it in weekend if I understand correctly, because he crashed it on Friday, so he did his fastest Friday lap on the old one, and he barely snuck into the top 10 for the Q2. And then on on, on Saturday... yeah. So, sorry, just to throw something in there, I did ask KTM about this at the weekend. This is not Honda's carbon fiber swing arm from a few years ago, where whenever it's crashed, it needs to be like ultrasound scanned and everything to make sure that it's okay. This is something that a rider can, can realistically throw down the road and get back on. So whenever Miller said he crashed it, he just smashed the bike up. It just took them a while to yeah. rebuild the bike, but they didn't have to do a ton of work on the frame. Yeah, but then, then on, on Saturday, he was on, on the front row, wasn't he? So, and, and obviously, but obviously for Binder, because Miller in the one representative race that we still saw, you know, he got the good grid position, but he was still sort of going back a bit, backwards. So the, 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 one, the one thing that really piqued my interest is seeing Brad Binder with the carbon frame uh, smashing the lap record on Friday, which just, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> so for me, that's huge. We think that's the first time that KTM have ever held a lap record in MotoGP. Oh wow! Even if it was only for twenty four hours, did 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 Miller do it on Friday in Portimao or? Don't think so. He, he wasn't under the he wasn't under the lap record. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Okay. No, we, we had this conversation with Bender actually, who wasn't too sure of it, but he thinks okay. that yeah, that it's the first time they've ever held a lap record. So, and and that's Brad Bender who can't really qualify, <laughs> relatively. Well, bearing in mind that KTM looked even better this weekend. It was also quite amusing given KTM season that it, it also brought along another chapter in its who's going to ride our bikes in 2024. We've got too many riders saga. And the thing that had seemed like quite a fixed point in this was that it was all happening because KTM had to get Pedro Acosta out of Moto2 onto the MotoGP grid next season. And the question was, who's going to make way for him? How many bikes could we add? That's been closed off. So then it was, is it Paul Spagaro being moved out of the way? Is it Augusto Fernandez? Even recently, is it is it Jack Miller? And then this weekend, Acosta starts dropping some massively unsubtle hints that he's the one who's going to end up disappointed, which I, has there been something that has changed in anyone's performance that's made KTM have a change of heart? Because I can't see that. 
Actually, Simon, can you can you tell us the Moto Two press conference story? Oh yeah, this this was yeah. Good. Um, so yeah, he was he was obviously asked about it in the Moto Two press conference and was was literally doing uh, you know figurative air quotes with his fingers, Doctor Evil style, to uh, <laughs> to explain that this was his last year in Moto Two and that he was going to enjoy himself doing it. Um, he is not someone that's afraid to stir the pot a little bit. Um, he also went on in the press conference to basically say, you know, I'm doing what I can. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping up my end of the bargain on track by fighting for a championship. And now it's up, K- up to KTM to do their end of it as well. Um, very much put the ball on their court. But it's, it is difficult to see a solution to this that, you know, someone is going to lose out. Someone is going to be unhappy. Um, and then, you know, just to complicate things even further, like this weekend, uh, if we'd win a full distance in, in sort of wet conditions on Sunday, uh, I think there's a fairly good argument that Augusto Fernandez would have been top KTM. For sure, was, for sure. Only one place behind Jack Miller and looking really strong. You know, th- they don't know what to do. That is the vibe that's coming out of KTM here. They do not know what to do. And they're just kicking the can down the road as quickly, as far as they can to try and avoid having to deal with any of the consequences of their actions right now. I do kind of understand, slightly understand the position they were in at the start of the season when it wasn't necessarily certain that Fernandez would develop as he had when Paul was in such an uncertain situation after his injury. Although when you've got a rider who means that much to you, that injured, that is not the time to make a decision that affects that person's future. And, And Acosta has looked so good for so long. So I am a little bit sympathetic to KTM, but... It's nearly 2024, isn't it? Uh, by the way, Simon, I should say, if you need to jump on your plane while Val gives his answer, feel free, because uh, listeners, Simon is recording with one eye on the clock before his plane leaves Japan. I want to hear what Val says. We have time. Oh, it's very sweet. But yeah, <laughs> I, just, I, I just think it's stunning. I just want to argue with what you say. <laughs> I just, all right. Good luck. I just think it's stunning that they haven't resolved it by now. I, I'm just, I'm genuinely... I, I don't know what they're waiting for. I think it, it's almost like they're waiting for some miracle extra grid spot or one of their five riders deciding, actually, you know what? I don't want to ride anymore. It's good. You know, this this life has treated me well. Maybe Augusto Fernandez will just suddenly decide to retire and then you don't have a decision to make. But that's that's not how it works. You have to You have to decide something. Everybody seems to be growing increasingly cranky about it. Uh, not just Pedro Costa, I think it also is weighing on Augusto Fernandez, and understandably so, because he would be your assumption of the rider who loses out, or at least he was before this weekend. Now nobody has any idea what's going on. It's just not the done thing, is it? It's, and I don't, I don't understand why they got themselves into this situation to begin with. But at at, at, cer- at a certain point, you just have to, you know, you just have to bite the bullet, and you have to say. We, we messed up. We promised too much. This is how we're going to put it right. Rather than just hoping that somebody will come to you with some sort of solution. There's two things I'm pretty sure of. Um, one is that they never expected to find themselves in this position. Uh, because they, they did not. They, they, they I think maybe there was a little bit of KTM arrogance that someone would do as they were told happily. Or that the grid spot would appear. Um, but it hasn't. Uh, and the other thing is that if Pedro Acosta stays in Moto2 next season, he will, without a shadow of a doubt, be the best paid Moto2 rider in history. 
to do so because that, that they're going to have to like he's going to be on MotoGP money factory MotoGP money to be in a Moto2 bike next year because they're going to have to do anything they can to placate him and you know KTM and Red Bull's solution normally is throw money at it um, I, I can't really see another option here at this point and with that, Simon, we will let you jump on your plane and get home briefly before MotoGP goes into, what is it, a triple header or something next time? It's another long one, isn't it, coming up? so A triple header and then a week off and then another triple header. Six races in seven weeks. Easy. Yeah. Yay. At least we have a title <laughs> fight to talk about. Can you imagine how we'd be feeling going Very to this true. run of your travel and our, sh- our shifts? With F1 is doing well to make this as impossible to rotor as it possibly can over these next few weeks. There'll be some of these podcasts I'm presenting having worked through the night from F1 starting in Mexico or, or America into the MotoGP morning on a different part of the world altogether. So I'm going to do my best to be coherent for everybody involved on that one. But thank you, Simon. Thank you, Val. Thank you, listeners, for joining us to hear about what has been another extremely intriguing weekend in this title fight um check out everything else on the race and in our podcast library and also check out the race members club if you haven't yet we've recently uh, done our equivalent of installing a carbon chassis on the back end of the website so the sign up process for our subscription section the race members club is a newly smooth experience there's loads of extra opportunities to quiz our writers and presenters debate every story and podcast with us suggest your ideas for things we should be doing and we actually do them uh, a lot of those ideas are f1 based so far so if you want to get more from MotoGP foot in the members club door uh, come and check that out there's a subscribe button on every page on the race the athletic